Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a very special show this week. In honor of Black History Month, we're going to cover some cases of some very amazing, interesting, and absolutely astounding Black heroes from history. And this week, I want to cover a woman that I have long been interested in, and that is Harriet Tubman. Harriet Tubman was born Ara Minty, or Minty Ross, to enslaved parents. Her parents were Harriet, also known as Rit Green, and Ben Ross. Her mother was enslaved by Mary Pattinson Brodus, and later Mary's son, Edward. Her father, Ben, was enslaved by Anthony Thompson, who became Mary Brodus's second husband, and this particular man ran a large plantation near the Blackwater River in the Madison area of Dorchester County, Maryland. Now, there is some debate as to the actual year of Harriet Tubman's birth. As with many people born into slavery in the U.S., the exact year and place of her birth is said to be unknown. And historians actually differ as to the best estimate of her birth. Some records indicate that she was born in 1822, and these are based on midwife payments and some historical documents, including the advertisement that was placed when she ran away. There's also some evidence that she was born in 1820, but it could have been a year or two later. Other historians note that Tubman reported the year of her birth as 1825, but her death certificate lists it as 1815, and her gravestone actually says that she was born in 1820. It is said that Harriet's maternal grandmother, Modesty, arrived in the U.S. on a slave ship from Africa. There is no other information currently available about her other ancestors. However, um, this could change in recent times with, with so much genetic genealogy coming forward now and being developed. But it is said that as a young child, Harriet was hit in the head by an irate slave owner who threw a heavy metal weight at another person and hit her instead. This particular injury caused her dizziness and pain and spells of hypersomnia, which is essentially sleeping a lot and being fatigued and tired most of her life. After this particular injury, Tubman is said to began experiencing visions and vivid dreams that she described as premonitions from God. And these experiences, combined with her upbringing in the Methodist church, led her to become deeply religious, according to historical accounts. As a young child, Harriet was told that she seemed to be an Ashanti person because she had some particular character traits, but there is no evidence found to confirm or deny this African tribal lineage. Harriet's mother, Ritt, who may have had a white father, was a cook for the Brodas family. Her father, Ben, was a woodsman who worked on the Thompson Plantation managing the timber work. Harriet's mother and father married around 1808, and according to the court records of that time period, the two had nine children together. The children were Lina, Mariah Riddy, Soph, Robert, Minty, or Harriet, Ben, Rachel, Henry, and Moses, in that order. And again, the years of those births have been disputed throughout time, and there are no official records of the dates that those children were born. During this period as well, as with many enslaved families, 
Harriet's mother and father really struggled to keep their family together as slavery threatened to kind of tear it apart. Edward Brodus, who was the owner of Harriet's mother, sold three of her daughters, Mina, Mariah Riddy, and Soph, and this separated them from the family forever. And this was a very common practice back then as Harriet and her family were born into chattel slavery, which is essentially the enslaving and owning of human beings and their offspring as property. So the owners of this plantation would buy either the mother or the father or the two together, and then any of the offspring produced by the mother and father would also be the property of that particular slave owner. These slaves were then forced to work without wages. So when a trader from Georgia approached Edward Brodus about buying Ritt's youngest son, Moses, Ritt actually hid him for over a month and she was aided by other enslaved people in this area so that this would prevent her youngest son from being sold. Harriet's mother was actually said to have confronted her owner at one point and said, quote, you are after my son, but the first man that comes into my house, I will split his head open, unquote. It is said then that Brodus backed off and abandoned the sale. This is actually said to have influenced Tubman's stance and belief in the possibility of resistance against slavery. When Harriet was a young girl, her mother was assigned to, quote, the big house and didn't really have a lot of time for her own family. This meant that Harriet had to take care of her younger brothers and sisters, and this was pretty typical in large families. When she was about five or six years old, Edward Brodus hired her as a nursemaid to a woman named Miss Susan. It was at that point in time that Harriet was said to have been caring for a baby. She had to rock the cradle as it slept, and when the baby woke up and cried, Harriet was beaten. She later told stories about particular days when she was lashed at least five times before breakfast or beaten. She carried the scars from this for the rest of her life, and this influenced her to find ways to resist. She often ran away. At times, she ran away for up to five days. She wore layers of clothing as protection against beatings, and sometimes she even was said to have fought back. As a child, Harriet also worked at the home of a planter named James Cook. Her job was to check the muskrat traps in marshes nearby, and even after she contracted measles and became so ill that she was sent home, her mother nursed her back to health, and then she was hired out again. Later in her life, she spoke often of homesickness, but as she grew older and stronger, it was said that Harriet was assigned to field and forest work. She sometimes drove oxen, she plowed and hauled logs. It was as a teen that Tubman suffered that head injury when the overseer threw a metal weight and hit her. It was said that this, quote, broke her skull. She lay bleeding and unconscious and had to be returned to her enslaver's house and remained in medical care for two days. Like I said earlier, she suffered extremely painful headaches, seizures, dizziness, and would sometimes fall unconscious. Though she claimed that she was aware of her surroundings when she looked like she was asleep, medical experts suggest that she may have had epilepsy as a result of her injury. Others suggest that her condition could have been narcolepsy or other medical conditions. So this particular injury, as I also said earlier, gave her vivid dreams and visions that she interpreted as revelations from God. These spiritual experiences for her made her very passionate about her faith. She rejected the teachings of white preachers who urged enslaved people to be obedient when they were trafficked and enslaved. 
Instead, she found her guidance with stories from the Old Testament, which were basically tales of deliverance. This religious perspective stayed with her throughout her life. As Harriet Tubman got a little bit older, it was said that Harriet Tubman's father was promised that he would be freed at the age of 45 by Anthony Thompson, who was his owner at that time. When Anthony Thompson died, his son did follow through with that promise in the year 1840. At that point, historical accounts indicate that Harriet's father continued working as a timber estimator and a foreman for the Thompson family. He then contacted a white attorney later and paid him $5 to investigate her mother's legal status. This lawyer then found out that Harriet's mother, Ritz, had also been promised to be freed by the age of 45. And this provision also applied to Ritz's children. So any one of them, once they reached the age of 45 years, would be legally free. However, it was obvious that the slave owners ignored the stipulation when they inherited the enslaved family. Because of the time period, challenging this in court would be legally impossible for Tubman. Around the year 1844, Harriet married a free black man by the name of John Tubman. There isn't a lot known about John or the time that he spent with Harriet. The union was very complicated, though, because of her enslaved status. Because she was enslaved, this dictated that any of the children that she had would also be enslaved, even though her husband was a free man. These blended marriages, people that were free marrying enslaved people, were not uncommon in Maryland in that area, where half the population was said to have been free. When this happened, these Black families would often plan to buy enslaved partners' freedom. Tubman changed her name from Araminta to Harriet soon after her marriage in 1844, but the exact timing of that name change is not necessarily clear. Historians suggest that this happened right after the wedding, but some say that it coincided with Tubman's plans to escape from slavery. She is said to have adopted her mother's name, possibly as part of a religious conversion or an honor to her mother. By 1849, Harriet became ill again, and this kind of diminished her value in the eyes of her owner. When Edward Brodus tried to sell Harriet, he could not find a buyer. She later said, quote, I prayed all night long for my master till the 1st of March, and all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. When it appeared as though the sale was being concluded, she, quote, changed her prayer. First of March, I began to pray, oh, Lord, if you ain't never going to change this man's heart, kill him, Lord, take him out of the way. Coincidentally, about a week after that, Brodess died, and Tubman expressed regret for her earlier sentiments. As was the way back then, when Brodus died, this increased the likelihood that Tubman would be sold and that the family would be broken apart. And true to form, his widow Eliza began to sell the family's enslaved people. But Tubman refused to wait for this, and she and her two brothers, Ben and Harry, escaped September 17, 1949. At the time, she had been hired out to Anthony Thompson, the son of her father's former owner, to a large plantation in the area called Poplar Neck. And this was in Caroline County, which was a neighboring community. And they also said that her brothers, Ben and Henry, were likely also working at the same place. 
So because the enslaved people were often hired out to other households, Eliza Brodus probably didn't recognize this as an escape for a long time. About two weeks after the escape on September 17th, Eliza Brodes posted a runaway notice in the Cambridge Democrat. She offered a reward of up to $100 each for the capture and return of the three missing slaves. However, it is said that Harriet's brothers probably had second thoughts about the escape back then. Ben was said to have just become a father, and the two men went back and were said to have forced Harriet to return with them. But Harriet soon escaped again, this time without her brothers. Tubman was said to have used a network at the time that was called the Underground Railroad. And the Underground Railroad was a network of clandestine routes and safe houses that had been established in the U.S. in the early to mid-19th century. It was used by enslaved Black people primarily to escape into free states or Canada. This network was assisted by abolitionists and other people that were sympathetic to the cause of enslaved people. Some of the routes led to Mexico or Canada and other places where slavery had been abolished, as well as to islands in the Caribbean that were not part of the slave trade. An early escape route running south towards Florida, which was then owned by Spain, existed from the late 17th century until approximately 1790. But the network generally known now as the Underground Railroad was said to have begun in the late 18th century. It ran north and grew steadily until the Emancipation Proclamation, which was signed by President Abraham Lincoln. It is said that approximately 100,000 enslaved people escaped to freedom via this network by the year 1850. And though her exact route to freedom is not known, Harriet made use of the Underground Railroad extensively. It is said that the Preston area near Poplar Neck, which was where she was working, had a substantial Quaker community, and this was probably the first stop during her escape. From there, it is said that she probably took a pretty common route for people fleeing from slavery northeast along the Choptank River through Delaware and then north again into Pennsylvania. The journey was about 90 miles, and by foot it could have taken as few as five days or as many as three weeks. It is thought that this probably took the longer of the two because Tubman had to travel by night, guided by the North Star, while she tried to avoid slave catchers who were eager to collect rewards when they found people that had escaped from slavery and returned them to their masters. So this Underground Railroad had people that were considered conductors who used deceptions to protect the people that were escaping. At one of the early stops, the lady of the house actually instructed Tubman to sweep the yard so it would look like she was working for the family. By the time night fell, the family hid her in a cart and took her to the next house on the journey with the Underground Railroad. It was said that because Tubman was familiar with the woods and marshes of the region that she likely hid out in these areas during the day. When she finally crossed into Pennsylvania, it is said that she felt tremendous relief and awe and recalled the experience years later saying, when I found I had crossed that line, I looked at my hands to see if I was the same person. There was such a glory over everything. The sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields, and I felt like I was in heaven. The next period in Tubman's life, 
She was said to have been nicknamed Moses because after she reached Philadelphia, Tubman was sad when she thought about her family. She considered herself a stranger in a strange land, and she wanted the rest of her family to be free as well. She worked odd jobs during this time period and saved as much money as she could. In the meantime, though, the U.S. Congress had passed the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850. This punished escapees and forced law enforcement officials, even in states that outlawed slavery, to assist in the capture and return of any slaves that had escaped. This law also increased the risks for people who escaped slavery, and racial tensions were also said to have been increasing in this area, particularly around Philadelphia, where poor Irish immigrants were said to have been competing with free Blacks for work. By December in 1850, Harriet was warned that her niece and her niece's two children would be sold in Cambridge. Harriet then went to Baltimore for the sale, where a free Black man named John Bowley made the winning bid for his wife. Then while the auctioneer stepped away to have lunch, it is said that they all escaped to a nearby safe house. By the time it got dark, the family then sailed in a log canoe where they met with Tubman, who brought the family to Philadelphia and their subsequent freedom. The next year, she returned to Maryland again to help guide other family members away from slavery. During this second trip, she recovered her brother Moses and two unidentified men. She was likely to have worked with abolitionist Thomas Garrett, who was a Quaker that had been working at that time period in Wilmington, Delaware. By that time, the word of her exploits had encouraged her family members, and she was becoming more and more confident in her mission to free other Black people. By late 1851, Harriet returned to Dorchester County for the first time since she had escaped. This time she was looking to find her husband, John. She had saved enough money from the jobs that she had been working to purchase a suit for him as she made her way south. However, John had actually married another woman named Carolyn in Tubman's absence. So Harriet then sent word that he should join her in freedom, but he insisted that he was happy where he was. It was said that she was at first angry, but then decided that he was not worth her trouble. Suppressing whatever anger she had over this issue, she found some other enslaved people to help escape to Philadelphia. Historians say that John and Carolyn raised their family together until he was killed 16 years later in a roadside argument with a white man named Robert Vincent. In December 1851, Tubman was said to have guided an unidentified group of 11 people, possibly including some family members of people she'd helped earlier, northward. There is also evidence to suggest that Harriet helped a group which stopped at the home of Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass was an American social reformer, abolitionist, orator, writer, and statesman. After he escaped slavery in Maryland, he became a national leader of the abolitionist movement in Massachusetts and New York. He was also very famous for his speeches and anti-slavery writings. So there was said to have been this pretty amazing connection between Frederick Douglass and Harriet Tubman during that time. Douglass and Tubman were thought to have admired each other greatly as they both struggled against the institution of slavery. And it is said that he also wrote a letter to honor her and compared her efforts to his own in his writings. Over a period of about 11 years, 
Harriet returned repeatedly to the eastern shore of Maryland, she was said to have rescued 70 different people in about 13 different expeditions, including her own brothers, Henry, Ben, and Robert, as well as their wives and some of their children. She was also said to have provided very specific instructions to help 50 to 60 additional enslaved people escape to the north. Because of these efforts, they gave her the nickname Moses, which alluded to the prophet in the Bible in the book of Exodus, who led the Hebrews to freedom from Egypt. One of the last missions that she did was into Maryland to retrieve her aging parents. So let's talk about some of the routes and methods that Harriet Tubman used in her work with the Underground Railroad. It was said that the things that she did were very dangerous and required a lot of ingenuity. She usually worked a lot during the winter months to minimize the likelihood that they would be seen. It is said she always came in the winter when the nights were long and dark and people who have homes stay in them. Once she had made contact with those escaping slavery, they left town on Saturday evenings since newspapers would not print runaway notices until Monday morning. The journeys that she took put her at tremendous risk and she often used subterfuge to avoid detection. She would disguise herself with a bonnet. She sometimes carried live chickens to give her the appearance of running errands, sometimes yanking the strings holding birds' legs so their agitation would allow her to avoid eye contact. At one time, it was also said she snatched a newspaper and pretended to read to hide herself from someone recognizing her. And Tubman sometimes also used her religious faith as another important resource to help people escape. The visions from her childhood head injury continued, it was said. She claimed that they provided divine premonitions, saying that she trusted God would keep her safe. She used spirituals as coded messages and warned fellow travelers of danger by singing versions of spirituals in which she would change the lyrics to indicate that it was either safe or not safe to proceed. It was said that Harriet also carried a revolver and was not afraid to use it. And this gun provided her some protection from slave catchers and their dogs. It was said that she also threatened to shoot any escaped person traveling with her who tried to turn back on the journey, since this would threaten the safety of those that were remaining in the group. It was pretty amazing that Minty, this petite, five-foot-tall, disabled woman who had run away years before and never come back was responsible for freeing so many enslaved people in this community. By the late 1850s, authorities began to suspect that a northern white abolitionist was secretly enticing away the people they had enslaved. Legends also persist that there was a reward of about $40,000, equivalent to about 1200000 today, for Harriet Tubman's capture. Although many people say that this is just made up. It is said she, quote, never ran off the track and never lost a passenger while working as a conductor of the Underground Railroad for eight years. In April of 1858, Harriet was introduced to the abolitionist John Brown, an insurgent who advocated for the use of violence to destroy slavery in the U.S., and although she never advocated for violence against white people, Harriet agreed that this course of action, Harriet agreed with this man's course of direct action and supported the goals that he had. It was at that point that these two sort of joined forces, working with Harriet's support networks and resources in Pennsylvania, Maryland, and Delaware, 
where the enslaved people would rise up and carry out a rebellion against the slave states. He asked Tubman at that point to gather the formerly enslaved people then living in present-day southern Ontario to join the fighting force, and Harriet did this. On May 8, 1858, Brown had a meeting where he unveiled his plans for a raid on Harper's Ferry in Virginia. But word of this plan was leaked to the government, and when the actual raid took place on October 16th, Harriet was not there. Historians believe she was ill at the time. The raid ultimately failed, and Brown was convicted of treason, murder, and inciting a rebellion. He was hanged December 2nd. His actions were seen by many abolitionists, though, as a symbol of proud resistance, and he was said to have been a noble martyr. In early 1859, Tubman bought a small piece of land near Auburn, New York, where she moved her family. But returning to the U.S. meant that they were putting themselves at a pretty high risk of being returned to the South or re-enslaved under the Fugitive Slave Act. But the land in Auburn became a haven for Harriet's family and friends. It was said that she also offered it as a safe place for Black Americans seeking better life in the North. And during this time, Harriet helped numerous other people. But it was said that in November 1860, she conducted her last rescue mission. She went to find more family members and found that they had died. But the children of these family members could be rescued if she paid a bribe. She didn't have money at the time, so the children remained enslaved with their fates unknown. But she didn't want to waste the trip, so Harriet gathered another group, including another family, for the journey north. The weather was really cold that year, and they didn't have much food. The children were drugged to keep them quiet while the slave patrols rode by. Ultimately, they reached the home of David and Martha Wright in Auburn, December 28, 1860, thus making the mission successful. But then when the Civil War broke out in 1861, Tubman saw the Union victory as a key forward in the abolition of slavery. At this period in time, she was said to have become a fixture in camps, particularly in Port Royal and South Carolina, where she assisted fugitives that were escaping slave owners. Tubman also served as a nurse in Port Royal, where she prepared remedies from local plants and aided soldiers that had been suffering from various ailments. When Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation, Harriet Tubman considered this a very important step towards the liberating of all Black people from slavery. With renewed support and defeat of slavery, in early 1863, Harriet Tubman led a band of scouts through the land around Port Royal. Later that same year, she became the first woman to lead an armed assault during the Civil War. Her service was extremely important because she served as a key advisor and accompanied on the raid, guiding steamboats around mines in the water, leading them around the shores. She was said to have been responsible for the freedom of countless enslaved people. And for two more years, she worked for the Union forces, tending to newly liberated people, scouting into the Confederate territory, and nursing wounded soldiers. At the time, she also made periodic trips back and forth to Auburn to visit her family and care for her ailing parents. When the Confederacy ultimately surrendered in April 1865, Tubman then went home to Auburn. Interestingly enough, during the train ride back to New York in 1869, after the Civil War, the conductor made her move from a half-price section into the baggage car. When she refused and showed her government-issued papers that entitled her to ride in that area, 
They cursed her and grabbed her. Other passengers jumped in to help the conductor, and while she clutched at the railing, her arm was broken in the process, and they threw her into a baggage car, causing even more injuries. White passengers at the time were cursing her and shouting for the conductor to kick her off the train. Even so, her act of defiance was said to have become an extremely important historical symbol later cited when Rosa Parks refused to move from her bus seat in 1955. Despite her years of service and assisting countless people to freedom, Tubman never received a regular salary and was denied compensation for many years. U.S. government was also very slow in recognizing its debt to her, but Tubman spent her remaining years in Auburn tending to her family and other people in need. She took in boarders to help pay the bills and ultimately fell in love with one of these boarders. The man, by the name of Nelson Charles Davis, was a bricklayer and soon fell in love with Harriet Tubman. Although he was 22 years younger than she was, the two were married in March of 1869. They adopted a baby girl named Gertie in 1874 and lived together as a family until Nelson died October 14, 1888. It was said that he died of tuberculosis. Friends and supporters were said to have been raising funds to help her during this time period. A book about her life was published in 1869 and this bought her about $1,200 in income. But facing debt that was starting to pile up, she ultimately fell prey to a swindle involving a gold transfer in 1873. Two men were said to have a cache of gold that they had smuggled out of South Carolina. They offered this treasure, which was said to have been worth about $5,000, for about $2,000 in cash. Tubman ultimately took these two men into her home and borrowed money from a wealthy friend so she could arrange to receive the gold one night. Once the men lured her into the woods, they attacked her and knocked her out with chloroform before they stole her purse and bound and gagged her. When she was found by her family, she was dazed and injured and the money was obviously gone. Many people were outraged by this incident and this refreshed the public's memory in her past service and her economic woes. A bill was then introduced providing her the sum of $2,000 for services rendered to the Union Army as a scout, nurse, and a spy. However, this bill was defeated in the Senate. But the Dependent and Disability Pension Act of 1890 made Tubman eligible for pension as the widow of Nelson Davis. She was then granted a monthly widow's pension of about $8, which is equivalent to about $260 in 2021. She also got a lump sum of $500, equivalent to about $16,290 in 2021, to cover the five-year delay in the approval of the funding. Various other bills were proposed in order to get Tubman some money, and she ultimately got about $20 a month which was $8 from her widow's pension and 12 for her service as a nurse. But they did not acknowledge her as a scout and a spy. Ultimately, in 2003, Congress approved a payment of about $11,000 of additional pension to compensate for the perceived deficiency of payments during her life. These funds were then given to relevant historical sites celebrating Harriet Tubman. Later in life, Harriet worked to promote the cause of women's suffrage, which was getting them the vote. She traveled to New York, Boston, and Washington, D.C. to speak out in favor of women's voting rights, 
the turn of the 20th century, Harriet Tubman became heavily involved in the African Methodist Episcopal Zion Church in Auburn. In 1903, she donated a parcel of real estate she owned to the church so that there could be a home made for Black people to come to who may be aged, injured, or need assistance. The home didn't open for about five years, and the church ordered residents at it to pay about $100 for an entrance fee, which Harriet protested. As she began to get older, the seizures and headaches from her childhood head trauma continued to trouble her, and she actually underwent brain surgery in the late 1890s. She had been unable to sleep because of pains and a buzzing in her head and asked a doctor if he could operate. He then sawed open her skull, raised it up, and it now feels more comfortable, she said. She did not receive anesthesia for the procedure and reportedly chose instead to bite down on a bullet as she had seen Civil War soldiers doing when their limbs were amputated. I mean, can you believe that? This woman must have been absolutely incredible. But by 1911, Tubman's body was so frail, she was admitted to a rest home. She was said to have been ill and penniless, prompting supporters to offer new donations to help assist her. She ultimately died of pneumonia March 10, 1913. And just before she died, she told those in the room, I go to prepare a place for you. She was buried with semi-military honors at Fort Hill Cemetery in Auburn. Harriet Tubman has quite a legacy. A survey at the end of the 20th century named her as one of the most famous civilians in American history before the Civil War, third only to Betsy Ross and Paul Revere. In 1937, a gravesite for Harriet Tubman was erected by the Empire State Federation of Women's Clubs. It is listed on the National Register of Historic Places. Her home was abandoned in 1920, but was later renovated by the church and opened as a museum and education center. The Harriet Tubman Memorial Library was also opened nearby in 1979. Many of the other places that she frequented were also celebrated and added to the National Historic Sites and Historic Sites and Monuments Board of Canada. Countless parks and other historical areas have also been dedicated to Harriet Tubman. And on April 20th, 2016, the U.S. Treasury announced plans to add a portrait of Harriet Tubman to the front of the $20 bill, removing the portrait of President Andrew Jackson, who was actually an enslaver himself and trafficker of human beings. There was some debate back and forth about this, but then in 2021, under the Biden administration, the Treasury Department resumed the efforts to add Tubman's portrait to the front of the $20 bill, and this change is said to still be in process. And then I have one more article that I thought was really interesting that I wanted to add to this, and it's 10 interesting facts about Harriet Tubman. Number one, Harriet Tubman was born Araminta Ross. She would later adopt the name Harriet after her mother, Harriet Ross. The surname Tubman comes from her first husband, John Tubman, who she married in 1844. Number two, Harriet was born a slave and raised on Maryland's eastern shore, where the lines between slavery and freedom were often blurred. It was not unusual for families in this area to include both free and enslaved members. Harriet's own husband, John Tubman, was a free black man. Her status, however, remained unchanged until she fled to Pennsylvania, a free state, in 1849. Her husband did not make the journey and ultimately remarried after Harriet's departure. Number three. 
Harriet would return to Maryland many times over the next decade to rescue both family and non-family members from the bondages of slavery. Number four, Harriet earned the nickname Moses after the prophet Moses in the Bible who led his people to freedom. In all of her journeys, she never lost a single passenger. Number five, Tubman's work was a constant threat to her own freedom and safety. Slaveholders placed a bounty for her capture at one point, and the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 was an ever-present danger, imposing severe punishments on any person who assisted the escape of a slave. Number six, Harriet wore many hats. She was an active proponent of women's suffrage and worked alongside women like Susan B. Anthony. During the Civil War, Harriet was also working for the Union Army as a cook, a nurse, and even a spy. Number seven, Harriet was acquainted with leading abolitionists of the day, including John Brown, who conferred with General Tubman about his plans to raid Harper's Ferry. Number eight, Harriet had one daughter, Gertie, who she and her second husband, Nelson Davis, adopted after the Civil War. Number nine, Harriet suffered lifelong headaches, seizures, and had vivid dreams as a result of a traumatic head injury she suffered as a teenager while trying to stand up for a fellow field hand. The same symptoms gave her powerful visions that she said were from God and helped her guide many of her trips to the North while leading others to freedom. And number 10, just before Harriet's death in 1913, she told friends and family, I go to prepare a place for you. She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. All in all, Harriet Tubman was an amazing woman who did so much to help free people from slavery during this time period, as well as her efforts helping women get the vote. If you would like to know more about her, you can check out the show notes where we will reference all of the information that we used today. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at the BFD podcast at gmail.com. And please join us again next week when we talk more about weird, wacky, and wild stories. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Mm-hmm.